Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Alex, welcome to the uh, podcast. Fantastic to have you along. Uh, sitting there, I believe you must be sitting in your office with all of your beautiful uh, kitchenware products on the wall behind you. Um, why don't we just get things started off? Tell us a little bit about Dream Farm and your responsibilities there. Sure. Thanks very much, Richard. Great to be on the program with you. Um, Dream Farm, we are where great ideas grow. Dream Farm, in a nutshell, we are a design company and we create the world's best kitchen tools and gadgets. And so what we do here is we take uh, problems in life that haven't been solved and we solve them. And so we wrap that up into a product that we would hope that people use often and for a very long time. And uh, My, sorry, sorry, you've um, uh, uh, you started this business quite some time ago and uh, we're going to go back and we're going to you know, have a talk through this sort of the, uh, the evolution of the business. But tell us a little bit about, you know, the scale now. I mean, uh, you've got a broad range and where it's being sold around the world. Uh, give us a sense of the scope. Okay. So we are currently sold in, I think, four and a half thousand retail stores. Uh, we're sold in 35 countries. And I started this in my mum's garage when I was 22 years old. I was studying finance and accounting at university. Everyone was starting to get placements at PricewaterhouseCoopers and all the big four companies. And I just had this epiphany moment of, oh my God, I do not want to be an accountant. But I had always wanted to be an inventor. I'd spent a lot of time growing up in my grandfather's workshop and he could make anything. He had every tool imaginable. And uh, it just occurred to me that um, you know, why spend your entire life wanting to one day handle a Jones account when you get one shot at it? Why don't you go and try and be the Jones account? So I took the three products that I thought were decent and worth taking to market. Um, and the idea being that if you can make something so unique and so valuable to other people, then you wouldn't have to spend a day selling. It would just sell itself. So I figured out I had one product that I could make uh, with parts from what was called BBC Hardware at the time. Yeah. This is back in Canberra. Uh, um, of course, I got eaten up by Bunnings and every other small little uh, store, hardware store, but I could buy enough to make parts for 10 to 50 and then sell those and turn that into 100 and go from there. So I started with one product. Uh, I went to the markets. Within about an hour of being at the markets, actually a local kitchenware store, uh, the bloke who was running the store, his name was Tim Wilson for the essential ingredient in uh, Kingston and Canberra. He came down to the old bus depot markets. He found my product and he said, hey, mate, people have been asking me for these things, but no one makes them. And I said, well, that's why I have. So <laughs> he said, well, I want to sell these in my store, but you can't sell them at the markets anymore. And I thought, hallelujah, I don't want to be up at 4 a.m. and going to the markets. This, and that was my start. And then one product or one customer turns into two customers. You leverage that, knock on more doors. You've got 10 customers, 50 customers. And then after a while, the number of phone calls you make to people going, hey, man, do you want to buy some more of my things? And they start saying, well, what else do you make? And so whilst I never intended to make kitchen tools and gadgets, um, as it turns out, the kitchen is the workshop of the home. You know, if you go into a, 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 a shed or a workshop, there is a tool to do everything. 
Well, inside, the kitchen is very, very similar. You've got 100, 150 different tasks that you need to do, and there are very specific tools required to do, do something. So because I wasn't much of a chef and still I'm not an amazing cook, although I do try, uh, I, all I saw was opportunity. What a great space to, uh, for innovation and to make a difference and create things that haven't been done before. So I was lucky in the sense that the first product I ever had was a kitchenware product. Uh, it was a coffee product, but I could sell it to a lot of kitchenware stores. So I either had the option to go down making more coffee products, and I didn't really see a future in that. There just wasn't the scope for innovation or kitchenware. And what I figured out was that um, the, the distribution channel was really what set itself up. And then once you've got a distribution channel, it's about feeding that rather than trying to go into new channels. So interestingly enough, I mean, as we've had kids, my wife and I have three kids now, but people always wonder, how come you haven't made kid products? And it's just because, I mean, we've got plenty of ideas for this. I mean, our design team have kids as well now. Um, that the, Different sales reps, different trade shows, uh, different distributors. It's a completely different ball game. So we really have stayed in our lane. And um, one product grew into two products. Eventually, we moved manufacturing offshore. Uh, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. With back, I remember back in the day, not to go on a tangent, although I do, is uh, I remember when we moved production offshore and everyone was like, oh, I can't believe you're moving to China. That's horrible for Australian manufacturing. When I first started making our first product, all of the parts combined, and I used to put these together every night of the week with my mom and my girlfriend, um, that those parts were made for $12.95. And we were selling them in the retail store for $30. Right. So the retailer takes their margin. You can imagine how little that was left with us. Now, making them offshore, they're made by somebody else in a box, in a bigger box, in a shipping container and delivered to us without any effort put in whatsoever, delivered for a third of that. So that gave us the ability to scale. And so we only had one product, but I had distribution in the Netherlands and Germany and the UK and the Canada and the US. And then one product grew into two products, grew into three, four, five. And now we have close to 50 products uh, that all do something unique and useful in their own right. Fantastic. That's a, sort of a, a, great, a great quick synopsis. I'm not able to talk today. Uh, and, in fact, uh, <laughs> I, I have uh, some of your products in my home because I, I love cooking as well. Let's go back a little bit in time, though. I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, – you know, you, you, your grandfather had a workshop and he had every tool imaginable. And, and um, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up and uh, mum and dad and sort of early life um, and interested in, you know, where you got this bug to be an inventor and a designer. And uh, uh, let's start the story back there. Yeah, I guess. It, and I had two. I mean, it's funny. You kind of look back in life and you figure oh, that's where I got that idea from. And like the uh, one of the things my dad used to drill into us is that if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. And so that's why all of our products, we're not trying to make five different pepper mills. We make one pepper mill and make sure it's the world's best pepper mill because of X, Y, and Z. So that was like the, the idea about doing things properly and getting a longevity out of them. We don't really look at our product design as having a small uh, life cycle. It's for the long term. Sure. For my two two grandfathers, one was he he was actually the farm hand. It's my dad's side. He was the farm hand. He could make anything. He passed away when I was quite young. But I remember my other grandfather, and they were quite well off as a family. This is my mum's side of the family. 
he was a dentist and he had a practice in Ballarat. And for those days, he was quite well off. But I remember him telling me, Alex, you need to find a way of creating income when you don't turn up to work. You know, that's what we now call a passive income. But he, he used to say to me, if I'm a, I, I'm a dentist, I do well, I went to school for however many years it was, but if I don't go and pull out teeth or put in fillings, I don't make any money. Yeah. Right? So you need to figure out how you can continually uh, earn income from uh, whatever you're doing. And then I guess the aha moment for me was traveling after school when you work out that your life's richness uh, is based on where you go, what you see, what you do, the experiences you have. And fortunately or unfortunately, the, re- the reality is how much money you have will dictate the places you get to on this earth. Where, what you can do with your life is unfortunately commoditized in money. Whilst that is the transactional basis of it, your richness in life really depends to some degree on the amount of money you have. So, right, if I'm just going to turn up to work every day, you know, I'm going to be in the same position as Pa was, uh, whereas I always wanted to be an inventor. And I guess, I don't know, if I overanalyze it, maybe it's the inner middle child in me wanting to be noticed. I can do something (laughs) cool too. (laughs) We actually grew up in Japan um, and... uh, I'm everywhere we went, my elder brother was, oh, my God, look how big and tall you are. And my little sister was, oh, she's so cute and lovely. And, and I was stuck in the middle going, I'm awesome too. <laughs> and so I guess, I don't know, I just, I get an enormous kick out of making tools that other people feel valuable. Uh, I, internally, I feel valuable myself. And that's what really drives us to create something that wasn't uh, before. Um, I, I remember when I first started dating met who's my wife uh this is 12 years ago whatever it was i went over to one of her friend's house this is coppo anyway he and his wife susie had just got married and he was i said oh what do you do i make kitchen gadgets yada yada and he said you know what you need to make and this is pretty classic barbecue chat for me is oh you know what you should make and he opened up the drawer and he said here is the potato mat mate this is the world's greatest potato masher you should make one like this and I thought it was a G up because he was holding our smooth, our potato masher. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's hilarious, mate. That is actually our potato masher. And then that was the moment where you re- like, it just felt so awesome that, you know, you could go and create product. People design products for mines or medical equipment. And, you know, I'm sure that's really rewarding for them. But for us as a company, we make products, consumer products that are in people's lives. These are products that you give as Christmas presents. These are products you receive for your birthday and think, that's awesome. I can't believe no one's thought of that before. And that's what we are able to do. So side channel. But the, you know, the interesting thing is over the years, people have seen what we've done and tried to buy the company, you know, or like made an offer or said, oh, it would be great if I, you know, I'd love to buy the company from you. And it always upset me because I don't think they appreciated the beauty of what we've actually created here at Dream Farm. And that's not kitchen gadgets. It's the ability to come up with an idea and put it into the world and have it in other people's hands. It's, it's all of it. It's being able to materialize a great idea and then on a larger scale, get it in lots of people's hands and feel awesome about having enriched a lot of people's lives. So, Alex, I mean, we kind of this conversation is going all over the shop, but that's okay. I enjoy this kind of chat. That's, why? That's why, me, mate. Sorry. No worries. Why do you um? 
why do you think that somebody offering to buy your company means mm-hmm. that they don't understand the vision or the passion for what you do? Maybe that's why they want to buy your company, right? Why, why, yeah, why does it have to be or rather than and? I guess it could be and, uh, but look, I've seen a lot of places over, like just experienced this, that when a good company is started, it's usually, in my experience and from what I've read and seen, it's there is a central figure in that company and normally the founder that's waving the flag or beating the drum and telling the company and everyone in it, this is the direction we're going in. I've got a vision, get on board, this is where we're going. And oftentimes when a company is bought and that founder or whatever is removed, it's just another job for everyone. It's a mick job. I turn up, I do the minimum required or as much as I think I'm going to get remunerated for the end of the year and that's the end of it. But I feel like with our spirit here at Dream Farm, everybody gets what we're doing and wants to be a part of something greater than themselves. And I feel like if we were working for another company, it just wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And I feel like I've just seen how many great brands over time have been destroyed by a private equity firm coming in. And what their job is, is to extract value out of that brand. Go to China, go to a manufacturing source, get absolute, just get me too products, stick a brand on it that has some uh, equity in the market and just get as much value out of that brand in a short amount of time as possible. Whereas what I see Dream Farm is, I don't plan on retiring. This is what I love doing and will be doing for the rest of my life. So it's it's about creating cool new, new things. It's not about the, the financial reward is definitely there. Don't get me wrong. And it's important for a lot of people, including us, but it's not the number one driver. The right. driver is creating something great. Sure. Okay. Let's, let's go back again. So you mentioned that you grew up in Japan. So what sort of work did your parents do? Uh, well, this is a podcast, so you won't see my quotey marks, uh, right. but my father was in foreign affairs. Okay. Uh, we, we were born in London when they were living in Moscow in the late 70s, early 80s, the end of the Cold War, so you can probably figure out what he did for work. Uh-huh. Uh, and w- we moved every three years uh, to another country. And so we had this great, diverse upbringing of different cultures and different people, and you really saw firsthand uh, the huge breadth of life experiences you know and and what different people saw i mean if you grew up in a little outback town in um wherever you know one day owning the milk bar would be a massive win for you or i own or manage the 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 royal pub on the main drag i've nailed it in life but the more you're exposed to the more you realize there's a lot out there that i need to do in my one shot at life and so at what point did you uh head back to Australia uh, to start your university studies? Was it at that time or earlier than that? No, I did uh, high school. I did. Uh, I went back to boarding school at Canberra Grammar uh-huh. um, and then stayed on and did uh, finance and accounting. started in economics, to be honest, uh, at ANU. And then that's when I started in second year uh, economics. I not only changed over from economics to commerce, but then uh, started Dream Farm in that same year as well. And so prior to starting your degree, was the intention that you were essentially getting business qualifications because you wanted to be an entrepreneurial business owner? Or at that point, was your pathway more towards, as you said, the you know um, the thinking was go and get a job at a big four or something like that? I think that was 
the intention. To be honest, I started economics just because I had the marks to be able to do that. Right. Um, and it was kind of like, well, what can you do? Well, I guess I should do the thing that uh, less people can do with that end of the uh, results for your final year of school. So I started that and realized that this is completely theoretical and just drove me crazy. I couldn't apply it to the real world. So I changed over to commerce, which made more sense to me. And I was kind of getting, you know, peas make degrees was the, uh, the saying back then. And then once you start applying it and it makes sense and the reason you're studying marketing or the reason you're studying advertising or whether it be consumer behavior or whatever it might be, once it starts making sense and there's a real world application, I don't get nothing but HDs because high distinctions because I loved what I was doing. It just made sense. I just, I think there's nothing more fascinating than the, the idea that you spend your entire life or most of your waking hours at work. Why? So that you can work out, work out with a walk away with a paycheck. Why is that important to you? You got money. Now, what are you going to do with that money? What is so important to you that you're going to give up, however, like whatever, 75% of your waking hours to get this paycheck? What are you doing? Now, I just find that when people go into store and a lot of whether it's you know, a goods or a service that they're trading for, you know, if you actually sat there and thought about it and go, was this worth an hour of my time this week to have that extra beer at the pub? to go out to that, you know, to have that bottle of wine, I just find it fascinating what people are tr- willing to exchange their time for in, the, in order to get into their hands. All right, let's put a pin in that because I'm keen to explore that a bit. But I'm keen to explore that a bit more. Uh, but anyway, so when you were at high school before going to uni, were you starting to play around with these ideas of, you know, inventing things and gadgets and so on? Was that something that was part of your life all the way through or or did you just go have this eureka moment one day, oh, I've got this idea for a kitchen appliance? No, 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 no. So I was the kid that had more Lego than the entire suburb next to us. I had always done that kind of broke my heart. <laughs> Seven-year-old son said to me, I don't want to this Lego in my room anymore. I'm over it. And I went, no, Lego, Lego. <laughs> um, but, like, always, I remember you used to say, oh, my sister still pays me out about this now. I said, let's go into the workshop. Hey, do you want to go and make something out of wood? Right, let's go and make something. Right. And then, again, eventually in year 12, when I was doing design and technology in my final year, I made, so I did the research, you had to create something, Right. I did the research as to, well, what can I make? And then I went to the insurance companies and figured out what is the number one claim. Um, and there's, you know, it tends to be for insurance companies, if the houses, it's a house fire. Right. And so it's, I've left something on the stove, it's got too hot, and now the place is burnt down or destroyed the kitchen or whatever it was. So I developed a system that a detected a house fire. I mean, simple. Similar to what you would see in McDonald's where they have that little, you know, that little red test tube of magic goo that gets too hot, breaks the glass, and the sprinkler system goes on. Right. Uh, a version similar to that, but it could be easily replaced with an off-the-shelf uh, fire extinguisher from Bunnings. So if it went off, it wasn't a catastrophic mess, and it was $40 to replace. It detected a fire had started on your cooktop and extinguished the fire and saved everyone a ton of money. So then I went to, and I started pitching that to, this is still in year 12, I went and started pitching that to a bunch of different appliance makers. Um, and it was, that's a nice idea, but unless you have a patent for it, what are we actually buying here? Yep. And so that began my journey into patents, and that is another story altogether that we could take hours talking about and um, probably pull me back on track. So, yeah, it was that's that was, I guess, always creating stuff as a kid and that went right through school and then um yeah later in life it's 
It's my happy place is actually coming up with ideas. Although I have to say, as a, a now CEO of business, business owner, runner, whatever I am these days, that's unfortunately a very small part of what I do. But problem solving, that's day in, day out. I mean, anyone who runs a company would know that or be envious of, wouldn't it be nice if there was someone above us that I could go, you know what, this is a bit hard. What's the solution here? You know, that's, I'm very envious. Although I do, we have a board of directors um, and Grant, who's on our board, I go to with my problems constantly and he's very helpful. So, yeah, like it's just nice to always have someone higher up to lean on. Uh, but that's kind of what I do, whether it be in marketing or sales or how are we going to get in front of people? How do we launch this product? How do we make people understand this product? You think about walking in a retail store and you know, the seconds, not even milliseconds that you have to, I mean, our biggest problem at Dream Farm, sorry, sidebar again, but because we make unique things that people haven't seen before, our greatest, uh, our greatest asset is also our greatest weakness in that we have to convince people what we've done or show people what we've done and why they should care. Because if you looked at something you've never seen before, what does it do? So we have to wrap their head around what we've, what we've done and why it's valuable to them in a split second. And so even to the, the problem of what image to have on the front of the packaging and does that best describe the unique function of this product, you know, so whilst it's not, we, we have an awesome design team, really. It's, um, and we've got people like Phil who have been working with us for a decade, more, more, more than 12, 13, 14 years he's been with us, um, who really, really get it and do a lot of great work. Uh, but problem solving is in every aspect of the business. So I guess now as a CEO, and that's my focus, that's more what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Right. And, you know, I'm a business owner too. My business is not quite as old as yours, so about to turn 13. But I want to come back to your, uh, you know, the comments you're making about, you know, this exchange of time for money, right? Mm-hmm. So, um you know, if somebody's going to work, they're spending 75% of their time at work in order to earn money to uh, have a lifestyle and be a good provider for their families and so on. And, you know, it sounds as though you invented this product, you went to the markets, you immediately got some attention. Uh, but I'm sure it hasn't been, you know, a beautiful run of, you know, through the entire history of the business where you've been able to go, you know what, I, I get to work four hours a day and uh, um, as a business owner myself, I know that, you know, there have been times where I've worked 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day, you know, to keep uh, my business um, uh, afloat. Fortunately, now, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I'm seeing some of the return on that time. But um, but tell us about the evolution of the business and, and how you, you're obviously extremely passionate about design and extremely passionate about the product. You're also very passionate about doing business. But how does that all work around your philosophy in terms of time for money? Interestingly enough, the I mean, they say that uh, progress is in a straight line. It zigs and it zags. But overall, if you flatten out that line, it is in the right direction. And being 22 and having no money, I mean, I lent on my family and anyone who even thought that we were half friends, I asked them for something and brought everyone in around me. It does take a tribe or a village. And um, so what we ended up doing is that, you know, laughing back, sorry, looking back, I've always laughed that if Dream Farm didn't work out, I would write a book to called The Mistakes I've Made because I right. feel like I've made most of them out there. 
and with good intentions, but you always look back and you, you can see that you, oh, that wasn't a great idea because. And, you know, if we get lots of people asking us, hey, can you help me out with my idea or this, that, and they always try and give back to, to hopefully they can skip these themselves. But back when you're 22 and you have very little funds uh, uh, and every unit you make, I mean, I didn't pay myself for five years uh, when I started because I always saw that as another product in the market. You know, that's another two products that I wouldn't get to launch if I started paying myself. So I was very lucky and very supportive, supported with uh, my family around me. Uh, but now what we do is instead of taking someone fresh out of uni and trying to mould them into what we do, I try and only hire people with five to ten years' experience so that the good people that have been with us, mate, we have people that have been with us for 14 years, 12 years, 10 years, 10 years, 8 years, like really long period of time because they get what we're doing and to live up to their expectations of their time at Dream Farm. Like I really want people to look back at their time that you spend your entire career with us and look back and go, what a great use of my life. That was really, really rewarding. And the only way that we get to reach our potential is by hiring people that are better than us, not trying to mold them into Dream Farm's uh, way of doing things and teach them, uh, but you know, bringing people in, whether it be with supply chain or salespeople, whatever it might be, that lift us up to their level. And I guess the exchange of time, yes, I want people to be rewarded, but I also feel that uh, that a um, responsibility to the people who are already here to keep them engaged and keep us growing and keep them interested in where we're going so that at the end of it, they go, yes, that was a great use of my time, but also scaling the business in a way that I can reward people that have been here for that length and for that journey. Because whilst lots of people, like, you know, we, we were paying the same person that was getting 55 grand when he first started with us 10 years ago, he's got a family and a mortgage and all the rest of it now. They're on much greater salaries. And the only way that we can afford that is by the same people achieving more. So there is that scalability that we unlock and need to continue to unlock to grow. Uh, but I guess in... I guess you know, it's your question more to do with culture and making sure that people in our business feel that they have, you know, been rewarded adequately for their time. Um, is that what you mean? Well, I think it's not so much about the people in your business. I think more so in terms of your own personal philosophy about your life. I mean, obviously, um, uh, as you've said, you know, it, uh there are greater opportunities to travel and do more interesting things if you are earning a, a higher income. So uh, yeah. the motivation isn't necessarily to earn money for its own sake, but because it creates opportunity for you to do the stuff that you love doing with yourself and your family and obviously your, your, uh, uh, your staff. I suppose, you know, uh, my question was more around this philosophical thought of, uh, you know, I'm spending 75% of my time in my job or you looking at other people and saying, "Where well, are you spending seventy five percent of your time in your in your job?" Um, uh, and yet, as a founder and CEO of a business, um, speaking from my own experience, I'm sure that you've spent you know substantial amount of your time in your business. And so, it's just understanding how do you come to peace with the fact that you know philosophically, I don't really want to do it, but because I own a business, I feel obliged to do it because I need my business to succeed in order to reward the people who have come on the journey. And that's more the point that I'm making. 
Uh, sure. The, mate, I have absolutely smashed. I've done all-nighters. I mean, <laughs> I, I work, a, yeah, do a lot of hours. Go home for a few hours and they put the kids through the system, listen to them and try and, you know, get some sense of fatherhood rather than just being on your phone or ignoring people and doing emails or whatever it might be. Yeah. Really try and spend a few quality hours with the family and then I jump back on every single night. Um, and then the U.S. is still awake on our Saturday morning, so I'm doing that. And then I like to get ahead on a Sunday evening and get a few more hours done. But that's not because, I mean, my wife thinks I'm a workaholic, but I genuinely love what I do. I, I, I just could not love what we do more. So it's not really work for me. There, look, there are a lot of jobs where I think, oh, my God, how am I still doing this? Why am I figuring this out? But get to the end and find the solution and it's really rewarding. So I'm glad that I did work on that. Uh, Look, I get up in the middle of the night all the time for a 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. meeting with a customer in Europe. Do that all the time. Uh, It just has never bothered me. I'm one of those guys that sleeps for four hours a night and has no problem with it. Um, (laughs) It's just my wife thinks I'm exhausting, but um, (laughs) it's just how I've always been. (laughs) I'm the same. I I sleep for about five hours a night. And at one point I thought, oh, I'm a bit worried that I'm not getting the eight hours sleep a night. So I actually went and saw a a sleep psychologist. He said, look, Richard, that eight hours a night thing is a load of rubbish. There's some people who sleep one hour a night. There's some people who need to sleep 12 hours a night. But certainly as a business owner, uh, I have some of my best business ideas between two and three o'clock in the morning. So I, I wake oh, up right. and I and I go, ah, oh, Eureka! I've I've invented a new solution or whatever it might be. And so let's look to the future now, um, uh, Alex. So as we speak, it's almost the end of 2021. Uh, hopefully, uh, a lot of the COVID restrictions we've had in terms of supply chain issues and travel and border closures and so on are, are going to be um, relaxed uh, over the next few months. So now, when you look to the future, I mean, you mentioned 50 products. Uh, but a desire to stay in your lane, being in the kitchenware space rather than get into kids' toys and so on and so forth. So, you know, as you project out, what are you excited about for the future of the business? Tons of things. I'm so excited about the I – mean, we had tripled our design team in the last 18 months. So a lot of people have, re- like, retreated during COVID and have spent less on uh, developing new products. We've doubled down. We've actually been one of those really lucky businesses through COVID – that we've done extraordinarily well. Uh, people at home, cooking more, all that sort of thing. Exactly what you'd expect. But that hasn't come without its challenges. Supply chain at the moment is an absolute disaster. right? And the I don't see that easing in the near future. Uh, so there's a lot of challenges with that and getting that right. And I think there's a lot of uh, movement in the geopolitical relationships with China. And are we going to continue manufacturing there? I want to be on the front... Like, this comes back to that responsibility that you feel as a business owner. I want to be on the front foot with this. I don't want Australia to blow up with China and then, oh, all of our manufacturing's there. You know, we're diversifying a manufacturing base, whereas it's always been easier to work with two or three good suppliers that we have and continue to build out new products with them. We need to diversify. If they burn down tomorrow, we'd be in trouble. Uh, but then is it is it India? Is it Vietnam? Is it Malaysia? We I just want to be on top of this. And then really systemizing our business is what I'm most interested and excited about over the next uh, three to five years, because we know what we know the value that we add to products. We've got our design down right. Like we know 
A dream farm product is something that solves a problem, is original, and works the best, right? And so we apply that theory to what goes in the box. Now the, the question is, you know, the marketing calendar, when we launch products, how we make sure when we launch products, there's stock on hand ready to go, the forecasting system, a new ERP. There's lots of cool things out there that I'm really excited about getting my teeth stuck into. Or Amazon, look at that. Like Amazon in the US for us right now is 25% of our revenue uh, in the US. So, but there's huge potential for us. Like what the great work that we've done on Amazon in the US, we should be applying to Amazon.de, like Germany or the UK or Japan or whatever. So there's huge opportunity for that. Now, whilst we only do kitchen tools and gadgets now, our goal is to make products that people use often and for a very long time. So there's lots of things that we could do. We've got ideas for whether it be secateurs or eskies or other products that people have in their lives that we can do and make better. And so there is the potential uh, for you to broaden out into different markets and different products in the future. This idea of sticking strictly in our, um, our current lane, uh, you see that once you've gotten to a certain point, that it is quite a... Uh, a reasonable strategy to have that diversification? There needs to be some link to it. So our plan at the moment is we've got six products launched for a release in 2022. We've got 10 for 2023, and that will be the first time that we also branch out with four products in a new category. Uh-huh. So whether that be bathroom or barware or storage or whatever it might be, it's still in that home space. Right. But a collection of products that tells a story that adds value outside of specifically kitchen tools and gadgets. Oh, absolutely. We think about that constantly. Okay, great. And uh, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about Alex, what he likes to do when he's not working. I mean, as you said, your wife thinks you're a workaholic, but uh, from our earlier <laughs> conversation, you're obviously married with some kids and, uh, and yep. uh, love um, – uh, smoking meat on the barbecue, which uh, we have a shared passion for. Uh, tell us and tell us about Alex when he's not at work. Uh, what does Alex do when he's not at work? I, I mean, my family takes up a lot of my time, and uh, you know, the my my kids Ned's seven, George is five, and Floss or Florence is two. <laughs> um, the two boys, if they're not they're not doing something wonderful or out there kicking a footy, they are fighting or whatever they might be doing. I mean, they're it's amazing how different they are. I mean, every parent knows this, but every, they're how different they are in personalities and nurturing them and trying to make them better people. And you can already see it like seven, how they are who they are. And you're just trying to guide them and not make them into turds later on in life. And I really feel <laughs> like these are the years we need to make sure they understand the boundaries and do what you're told and all these sorts of things. Uh, but my little girl, Elle is my world. Um, she just couldn't be more fun. Uh, she's the biggest personality in our house. Um, and yeah, she, but just trying to spend time with them and teach them how to ride bikes and go fishing or go camping with the family. I just get a kick out of it. I just think it's awesome. I think my family's just a great bunch of people. And you obviously love to travel. Where's uh, somewhere that you're keen to get to once uh, you can jump on a plane and go overseas? Man, I clocked 40 just recently in September this year, and I always wanted to take because I'd grown up, we did you know lots of Southeast Asian countries. My dream was always to take our family to India for because it would be something completely different. Yeah. You know, like if you've been to Japan, that is completely different. Uh, and I really wanted to take them there for my 40th, but unfortunately that wasn't to be. Um, my kids will never listen to this 
podcast, or maybe they will when they're later, so I can say that we're actually taking the kids up to, at the end of next year, we hope to go to Lapland and okay. show them Father Christmas before right. that the uh, cat gets let out of the bag, so to speak. Yeah. And then um, I just, yeah, I would love to take them as many places as possible. Like India is a big one for me before I, uh, my time's up on this planet. I want to have been to Antarctica. In, yeah, India definitely. There's, mate, there's tons of South America that my wife and I haven't done yet. But we've, you know, we've been there before. Uh, Africa is the, uh, and Antarctica, the only continents I haven't been to. So I definitely want to go and do some traveling there. I, I am just so excited that we are, I mean, we're in Queensland, right? So we're shut off from not only Australia, but the rest of the world at the same time. But at least the borders will be open in whatever it is, 10 days time now, and we can start getting on with our lives. I mean, I remember when uh, I wasn't 40 yet, so I wasn't eligible for the vaccination. But the second that Anastasia told us that, hey, there's a few extra doses going around, turn up at the hospital. My sister and I were down there that next day Get it done. Let's just get this done. I'm just so sick of COVID and <laughs> all the drama that comes with it. Oh, oh, okay. It's exactly the same. I would, uh, I love live music and all of these fantastic tickets to big gigs that I bought were getting pushed back and pushed back oh, and pushed constantly. back. And oh, so as soon as I can get vaccinated, I, went, I got vaccinated straight away, not because, you know, I, I, I believe I need the vaccination in order to be safe. Um, uh, in fact, uh, you know, I have uh, my own views about that. But the reality is that you just got to get it done, right? Um, in order yeah, to enjoy it's inevitable. The- yeah, and I, I like you. You know, I travelled a lot when I was a kid uh, with my parents, and uh, my children are now fourteen and nine. And uh, I really want them to have that opportunity to experience other cultures and to realise how good their life is and, and to meet it. And, you know, I haven't been able to put them on a plane for, you know, two years. Uh, so I can't wait to, you know, uh, head overseas again. Um, but look, uh, Alex, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I think we could have continued this conversation for far longer. Uh, all, all, <laughs> Definitely. All, all of the philosophies of running businesses and uh, opportunity cost and so on. But, uh, you know, I, and I can say, uh, I said to you the first time we spoke, I, um, I needed to buy a new pepper grinder and I typed into Google, what is the world's best pepper grinder? And your or two product came up and I actually bought two of them and I, freaking love them and uh and so uh, a little bit like your friend who pulled out the potato masher uh i uh, i'm uh, a very strong advocate for the wonderful work that you're doing and your team and i wish you the very best uh but thanks again for your time and uh, have a fantastic afternoon thanks richard i've really enjoyed the chat and uh thanks for your time it's been fun take care mate you too thank you thank you for listening to the arate podcast with richard tricks We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.